I invite you to take your Bibles once again. Turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning. We are going to finish our short walk through the prologue of John's gospel, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. This morning we will look at the last section, verses 14 through 18. John 1, 14 through 18. This is God's holy word for us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, we do pray that you would add your blessing now, not only to the reading of your word, but especially now to the preaching of your word. Write your truth upon our hearts. May the unfolding of your word give us light, the light of Jesus, the light of the world. And we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> the longest psalm in the Bible is also the longest chapter in the Bible, and that is Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is 22 stanzas long. Each stanza is eight verses, 176 verses total. And what is the longest psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible about? It's about the Bible. <laughs> it is a long, extended, prayerful meditation of, of poetry and lyric and song about the Word of God. And right in the middle of the psalm, the twelfth stanza, verses 89 to 96, is about God's law, but from a slightly different perspective. Each stanza is about God's law in some way, and this one is about the law of God, the Word of God, in a particular way. Here, the psalmist reflects on the fact that when God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, that wasn't when the law came into existence. He says this in verse 89, Psalm 119, 89, he says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. From eternity, there was God's word with him, standing firm in heaven, before the word was revealed on earth. Now, remember, John, the author of the fourth gospel, he is reading his Old Testament. Of course, it wasn't the Old Testament for him. It was just the Bible. 
But for, for him, he's not reading it in the original Hebrew. He's reading it in the ancient Greek translation. And as we've pointed out, in John 1, when he says the word was with God, the word was there in the beginning, it's the Greek word logos. And that's the word here in, Psalm, in the Greek translation of Psalm 119.89. Forever, O Lord, from eternity, O God, your logos stands firm in the heavens. The law existed in heaven with God before it was given on Mount Sinai. And he goes on in this stanza to say that it's God's word that creates all things. And it's that same word that saves all of God's people. And he gets to the end and he says in verse 96 of this, the end of this 12th stanza, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. I have seen a limit to all perfection. Everything that exists in this universe is limited. That's what being finite means. Limited in amount or scope. He says, I've seen the finitude of the universe. Everything's limited, especially in how good it is. Perfection is the most severe of limitations that we all know on a daily basis. You aren't perfect. Surprise! And I'm not perfect, and nothing that exists is perfect. But when the psalmist contemplates this eternal word that's there in heaven with God that gets revealed on Mount Sinai to Moses, he says, I've seen a limit to the perfection of everything, but when I look at God's word, it's exceedingly broad. I can't find the boundaries. I can't find the border where it stops in its perfection. There's nothing like God. There's nothing like his word it is exceedingly broad. It is unlimited in its perfection. That is a perfect representation of the standard Jewish theology of John's day that comes down to him as he's writing his gospel. Both in the scriptures, in their Greek translation, and in the books of Jewish theology that are being written between Psalm 119 or between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. There's a whole bunch of theology and writing and religion and discussion and debate about these issues. And this is the theology of John's day, that there is God and His eternal Word. And that's reflected perfectly in the prologue to John's gospel, verses 1 through 18. In fact, from verses 1 through 13, we get John giving us this theology. The Word was in the beginning. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Through this Word, everything that has come into being exists. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. This Word is God's light that shines His revelation into the world. Some people reject it and remain in darkness. Other people embrace it and, and they get saved and they become children of God. That's all John 1, 1 to 13. And that, if that's all we had, you wouldn't know this was a Christian document. There's nothing about that that is distinctively Christian. Yes, it's what Christians believe. It's in the Christian Bible. It's, so, yeah, it's Christian teaching. But at the time, it wasn't unique to John. It wasn't unique to Christians. This was just standard theology about God and His perfect, creating, saving, light-giving Word. 
It doesn't get Christian until we get to our passage this morning, until we hit the climax of the prologue, until we hit the pinnacle of human history, until we get to the apex of divine revelation, the culmination of the whole plan of redemption from Genesis right the way through up to this moment, we don't get the distinctively Christian content until we get to Christmas. Verse 14, that word Forever, O Lord, your word is fixed in the heavens, stands firm with you. Through that word you made everything. Through that word you saved your people. That word that has no limit to its perfection. That word, verse 14, it became flesh and it dwelt among us. That was unheard of. That was new. That was Christian. And in our passage this morning... As we go through verses 14 to 18, I just want to highlight, I want, not highlight, I want us to contemplate together. I want us to focus on the two focal points, the two central points John's trying to make in this, in this section of the prologue, 14 to 18, this climax of the opening chapter of John. Two central points. First, the Word made flesh, and then the Father made known. And what I want us to do is really zoom in and look at Jesus and look hard at Jesus this morning and just revel in who he is in this passage so that we truly can sing, oh, come, let us adore him. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but Jesus has no limit in his perfection. That's why we adore him today. So that's where we're going. Let's press in and let's see what God has for us. Point one, the word made flesh. The Apostle Paul, in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. How? Born of a woman, born under the law, meaning born into a Jewish family. Born under the law means he's Jewish. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and he did it in the fullness of time. When the time was ripe, when history was at the point where it was ready, when history itself, when the biblical storyline itself was pregnant with the Messiah and ready to give birth to the Savior... That's when God sent Jesus, born of a woman. And it's in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke where we read the nativity stories, where we read the Christmas stories about how Jesus was born and what took place. And, and I love that we have two accounts, and I love that they're different. I love the differences between these Gospel accounts because they give us two different perspectives, like two different portraits of the same event from two different artists can be very different, and that's fine. They complement each other. Because in Matthew, you get the story of the birth of Jesus from Joseph's point of view. But what's a birth story without talking about the mother's point of view? And that's what Luke gives us. Luke is constantly telling us what Mary was thinking and feeling in her heart during these experiences. Matthew tells us about the dreams that Joseph had and the way an angel appeared to Joseph and how Joseph was instructed to lead his family. That's precious, but I'm so glad we get Luke who tells us here's... 
Here's the, revel- here's the angel that appeared to Mary. A birth story needs to have the mom as the central character, at least among the parents. That's what Matthew and Luke give us. They give us the story, what Paul just mentions in a line, born of a woman, no details. Matthew and Luke give us the details. But it's John in our passage that, gives, that pulls back the veil of eternity and shows us that what Matthew and Luke describe in their nativity, what Paul alludes to in a sentence, is the greatest mystery that we've ever contemplated. It is the Word made flesh coming into our darkness, the light of the world shining in a manger. Mystery of mysteries. As we look at this verse 14, as we push into verse 14, I want us to look at the three key phrases that are in this verse. There are three verbs in verse 14. Became, dwelt, and have seen. Became, dwelt, and seen. That's the action, right? The verb is the action of the sentence, right? That's where the action's happening. So I want us to focus on these three verb phrases, became flesh, dwelt among us, seen his glory. Let's start with the second one in the passage. Let's start with dwelt among us, and let's see what this means. Me and Sarah like to watch these uh, nature survival shows, right? Alone, naked and afraid, (laughs) right? Really quality TV, right? And, uh, and so what's the premise, right? They, they, get, they, get, they volunteer, these, these knuckleheads, they volunteer for this, and, and they get dropped off in some remote island in, you know, off the coast of Canada or something, just the worst place you can imagine. And they, and they get put in isolation, right? And their goal is to see who can outlast the other ones, who can live out there in the wilderness the longest, Right, and so the first episode, you meet the characters and you learn about how crazy they are and you know what a sacrifice they're making, blah blah blah. And then they get put out there, and what do they have to do first? Well, they need to find a good spot where they can live alone in the wilderness or in the woods or wherever for like two or three months and try to win the prize. And so they got to find a good spot that's close to water, and they got to start a fire. You only got about 36 hours. You need fire. You need water because you got to drink. You need to find a place that's preferably not where the predators in the area are hunting, but where you can also find some food. So you really got to think about it. But the main thing you got to do is figure out where you're going to sleep. And so one of the big projects on these shows, one of the first things you have to do is you got to build a shelter. You got to build your shelter. Got to have a place to stay, to sleep, to live. And The Greek word that's translated in the ESV as dwelt is somewhere in the neighborhood of what those survivalists are having to do. They have to build a shelter. The word built a shelter among us. The word set up camp is the idea. The Greek word is actually the verb form of a noun that means a tent or a tabernacle. And so if we, if we turn the English word tent or tabernacle into a verb, that's what the word did. It tabernacled among us. It built a shelter. It set up camp. 
It established a dwelling place in our midst. And this language of tent and tabernacle clues you in to what's in the background of John's mind. He's thinking about the book of Exodus. He is thinking about the end of the book of Exodus. Exodus chapters 35 to 40 is all about the construction of the tent, the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle. And in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, the very end of the book, we read these words. Exodus 40, 34. Moses has just finished building the tabernacle, and then we're told, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And in the Greek translation of that verse, three key words are repeated in John 1.14. Tabernacle, the noun that gets turned into a verb to dwell, tabernacle, and glory, we have seen his glory, and full of grace and truth, where the cloud fills the tabernacle. These key ideas are in both passages, filling and glory and tabernacling in our midst. In the back of John's mind here is he's thinking about the book of Exodus. The word dwelt among us by building a tabernacle and then dwelling in that tabernacle in our midst. The same thing happens in 1 Kings after Solomon finishes building the temple. Right? They finish constructing it and then Solomon is going to dedicate the temple... But before he can do that, this is what happens in 1 Kings 8, 10 through 13. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell forever. And the word became flesh, and it dwelt among us. You see, dwelt among us is all about this passage in Exodus and this passage in 1 Kings. The incarnation is tabernacle theology. It's temple theology. Only more so. Because in Exodus, when God comes and dwells in the tabernacle, no one says, you know, God was made tabernacle. When God's spirit dwells in the temple, no one says, and God became temple. No, there was clearly a difference. The temple's one thing, and God's spirit and presence is another, and one is inside the other. 
But here, it's temple theology, it's tabernacle theology, but only more so, more radical. Because now, now we're told by Paul in Colossians 1.19, he says, In him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or Colossians 2.9, In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Bodily. And there's the great difference. What is that tabernacle or temple that the word dwelt in? He built a shelter and dwelt in our midst. What was that shelter? What was that camp, that tent, that tabernacle? And that's the second phrase. The first key phrase is dwelt among us. The second is the Word was made flesh. Flesh was the tabernacle. A human being was the tabernacle. He built a shelter in the womb of the Virgin Mary and dwelt within it. He built a flesh and blood, body, heart, soul and spirit man and he entered into a personal living vital union with that complete humanity so that now the personhood of the man Jesus and the mind of the man Jesus and everything about the man Jesus is now the words the personhood of Jesus is the personhood of the word the character of Jesus is the character of the Word. The mind of Jesus is the mind of the Word. There is a union, a personal union of God's divine Word with human flesh into a single entity, one Christ. Not two Christs pasted together, but one Christ, God's divine Word in human flesh. A single person the Word dwelling in our midst as a real, true, living, walking, talking, breathing human being, the man Jesus. And it's, then, it's at that point that John chapter 1 begins to call Him the Son. That's verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. In that manger, this eternal Word that was sort of born of God at eternity past, was literally born of God and Mary in Bethlehem's manger, where the Word becomes God's uniquely begotten human Son, the man Jesus in Bethlehem's manger. We've seen He became flesh. He dwelt among us. Third key phrase in verse 14, where it says, We have seen his glory. We've seen His glory. Once again, the background here is the same. John is doing Exodus theology, tabernacle theology. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18, Moses is having this discussion with God. The Israelites just sinned with the golden calf. Not good. God wants to wipe them out and start over with Moses. Right? Moses can be the new Abraham. I'll make a nation out of you. And Moses says, please don't do that. 
please don't wipe out your people. And they bargain with each other for God to forgive the Israelites. And then Moses, in a cry of desperation, Exodus thirty-three eighteen, he says, Please show me your glory. Please, I'm begging you, show me your glory. And in chapter 34, the prayer is answered. 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that last phrase, those last two items, steadfast love and faithfulness, are what get rendered here in John 1.14 as grace and truth. Those are the concepts. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the thing that Moses prayed for, he got a glimpse in the cleft of the rock. But John says, in Jesus, we get the full revelation. Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses' prayer. Please, God, show me your glory. And it's fulfilled in the manger when Christ, the Word, when the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us, and we see His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. He's full of grace. And he is full of truth. Now, verse 16 says, from his fullness, he's full of grace and truth, right? From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I love this. I love this little, this little addition here in verse 16. From that fullness, we've received. You know, in our New Testament reading earlier, we read my favorite nativity passage. Luke chapter 2, I do not fear, the angel says, I send you good news of great joy that shall be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. I, I just get thrilled by that verse every time I hear it or read it. My second favorite Christmas story or, or passage of the Christmas story is the Magi. The wise men, we three kings, that stuff. When they come to find Jesus. And what do they do? They bring him gifts. They bring him their treasures, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But John flips that and says, you didn't just bring me gifts when I was born. Here, John says, Jesus brought us gifts. He came into this world bearing gifts. And what did he bring? Glory and grace and truth. For gold, frankincense, and myrrh. He brings the very glory of the Father. He brings us the grace of heaven. He brings us the eternal divine truth of God. And He shines that light on us. He comes bearing gifts for our good, for our salvation, for our enjoyment, for our life with Him in this world and our life with Him ever after. Jesus came bearing gifts, and of his fullness we have all received. Remember Psalm 119, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your word is exceedingly broad. There's no limit to it. Here, 
There's no limit to the fullness of glory that Jesus has. There's no limit to His grace. There's no limit to His truth. Everything else in this world, Christian, is limited in how glorious it is. It's limited in how much grace you can get out of it. And it's limited in truth. There's nothing in this world you can rely on to tell you the whole truth 100% of the time. Not your favorite pundit, not your favorite news station, not your favorite newspaper, not your favorite politician, not your favorite theologian, not your favorite pastor. Nobody can give you the whole truth 100% of the time because we're limited. We all have error mixed up in our thinking. And you know what? If I knew what my errors were, I'd change them, but I don't know what they are. (laughs) So I think everything I think is true. (laughs) I mean, I don't really believe that, but I don't know what part's wrong. You get me? And you don't either. Well, maybe you know what part I got wrong. But you don't know what part you've got wrong. Everything's limited. Jesus is the one who is unlimited in glory, unlimited in grace, unlimited in truth for us and for you. Christmas isn't just the Magi bringing Jesus some treasure. It's Jesus bringing us his treasures and sharing them with us and of his fullness We've all received. And because it's fullness, there's always enough left for you. No matter how many come, no matter how many receive, there's always a fullness. A well that never runs dry, that satisfies you forever. That's what he brings. That's what it means for the word to be made flesh. Let's move to our second point this morning. We've seen the word made flesh. Now let's consider the Father made known. At the beginning of verse 18, John says, No one has ever seen God. No one. No one's ever seen God. Paul will say in 1 Timothy chapter 6, I think it's around verse 16 maybe, but somewhere in chapter 6, Paul will say, Describing God that he dwells in unapproachable light. Whom no man has ever seen or ever could see. You can't see him. You couldn't if you tried. Because he dwells in unapproachable, blinding light. It's too bright. It's too bright. You can't stare at the sun for too long. (laughs) You can't stare into the light of God and see him. And what he means is you can't see God face to face and live. And now we're back to Exodus. Because remember, remember Exodus 33? Moses says, please show me your glory. And what's the answer? Moses gets a glimpse, but what does God say before he gets a glimpse? God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. We've only seen in Moses' day, we'd only seen the back end of God's glory. We had not seen 
his face because we couldn't see his face. No one could do that and live. But when God finally shows his face, whose face is it? It's the face of Jesus. The prayer that it just couldn't be answered for Moses. God's like, I'd love to, but you can't see my face and live. So I'm going to put my hand over you until I walk by. And then I'll take my hand off. And you can see me walking away, but you can't see my face. And what was denied to Moses is given to us. For Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And Jesus will say, when you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Why do you ask Philip, show us the Father? Haven't you been with me this long and still you don't know me? Jesus isn't saying, I'm the Father. But he is the perfect, full revelation of the Father. For Moses, he couldn't see God's face. But after the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, we can. We see God's light and glory shining from the face of His uniquely begotten Son, the Word made flesh, the man Jesus. In Exodus, we're told, no one who sees God's face can live, but now everything's different. Now, no one who sees Jesus' face can perish. That is, if you look to him in faith. See God's face, apart from the incarnation, you're incinerated. Can't see it and live. But after the incarnation, you look at him with the eyes of faith, you see the face of God. And no one who looks at that face can perish when you look to that face in faith. When you believe these words that were given for you, the word became flesh. If that's your faith, you can see the face of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see the light of his glory and you cannot perish. This is the dividing line between ancient Judaism and ancient Christianity. This is where the Christian distinction makes these two faiths into two faiths. John is writing his gospel at a time that historians and scholars look back on today and they call it the parting of the ways. See, Christianity started out inside Judaism. It didn't start as this other religion that didn't like Judaism. No, it was a Jewish faith from its inception because Jesus was Jewish and Paul was Jewish and Peter was Jewish. It's a Jewish faith. In its first couple of generations, these are not church versus synagogue. It's one synagogue against the other. Or it's people on this side of the synagogue against people on that side of the synagogue. And what happens is eventually, by the end of the first century, you see the fracturing start to happen. And they start branching off into two different directions. Eventually becoming two full-blown different faiths and different religions. But back in John's day, the split was just happening. And John talks about in his gospel, he shows Jesus warning people that the day is coming when you be- people who believe in me will get kicked out of their synagogues. And the reason he included that bit is because that's what was happening in his day. 
synagogues were splitting. Jews who believed in Jesus were separating from Jews who didn't. And that's why all of a sudden in this passage, Moses comes up. Now, yeah, the Exodus has been in the background, but what's Moses and the law doing all of a sudden popping into this passage? That's verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, remember, back to Psalm 119. Jews believed in the... God's Word was with Him and was Him. The Word was with God and the Word was God in the beginning and God made everything through it and God saves His people by His Word. Yeah, they believe that. Not every Jew believed the same thing like every Christian, not like, you know, every Christian doesn't believe the same thing. But many Jews did and this was a standard idea in Jewish theology at the time. Well, what did they believe about this Word? See, we sometimes think that Christianity invented the Incarnation. We didn't. There was a pre-Christian idea of incarnation. There was a pagan doctrine of incarnation. It wasn't exactly the same, but the idea was there. It was current. Greeks and Romans believed that there were certain kinds of incarnations, and some Jews even believed in some incarnations. And what did they believe? They believed that this word that was with God was incarnate, but not as a person, as God's law like the scroll. They believe that the word became book and dwelt among us. That when God revealed his law to Moses on Mount Sinai, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books, the Pentateuch, they believed that was the incarnation of God's word. It was God's word on paper. In an incarnation sense, Remember a few weeks ago we talked about that character in Proverbs, Lady Wisdom, that by this day when John's writing got merged with the Word so that this figurative, fictional character in, in the Old Testament, Lady Wisdom, is described as this person who was next to God helping him create everything. Now this wasn't a real lady in heaven, this was just a personification of God's perfect wisdom. But the Word was this real entity with God and by John's day they've merged into one figure. So that what the Word does is attributed to wisdom, and what wisdom does is attributed to the Word. So they become this one figure. Well, Jews believe that that figure, that wisdom Word, became incarnate on Mount Sinai as God's written Torah, His law. And so that's why the Torah is so central to what we know as Judaism, because even if they don't today literally believe that it's an incarnation of anything, that's beside the point. But in the ancient world, this is where you find the fullness of God's glory, grace, and truth. All of His wisdom is embodied in this book. The in, they believe not an in incarnation, but an in bookification. The Word was made book and dwelt among us, and we beheld its glory. So this is, this is where Judaism is going. It's no, it's not Jesus, it's, it's the law, it's, it's God's Word, it's Scripture, it's the Bible. And here John is pushing back against that idea. He's trying to refute that idea. And he's saying, we don't believe the Word became book. We believe the Word became flesh. And that's why you should be a Christian. Because God's Word and wisdom is embodied in this person, not in this book. Now, he's not denigrating the book. If you look at the end of verse 16, he says... 
from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. So he's saying, yes, God's law is divine in origin. It comes from God. It's inspired by God. God revealed it on Sinai to Moses. You better believe it. And that was a gift of His grace. There is divinity to be found in this word. It's the word of God. It was grace. It was a gift. But it's not the incarnation of God's wisdom word. It's not the fullness of grace and truth. There's something greater. It's Christ. There's something better. Moses and the law was great. But Jesus and his fullness is better and greater. Not Moses bad, yuck, get rid of all the Jewish stuff. Christian stuff, good, yes. It's not that. It's saying, look, Moses was fantastic. It's, it's the Bible. Jesus is that much greater. So don't get rid of the Bible and take Jesus. We need both. Because Jesus says it's that very law that talks about him. It all points to him. He is the culmination. Jesus, not Moses. The word made flesh, not the word made book. The law was given through Moses and it was grace. But the fullness of grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The fullness of Jesus' human life. Jesus' attitude, Jesus' heart, Jesus' spirit, His character, His personality, His perseverance, His faith, His love, His purity, His innocence. Everything about Jesus is the revelation of the fullness of God. You know, there was a, a, a Bible scholar who was on a Q&A panel at a conference, a big professional New Testament scholarship conference, and he was asked, you know, you're a Christian and you're a professional historian. How do you balance those two things? How do you balance your professional scholarship, which is not supposed to have faith commitments, to your Christian faith, your belief in Jesus? And he summarized it very, very simply. In just a couple, in just two sentences, he said, As a historian, I believe that Jesus was a peasant with an attitude. And as a Christian, I believe that Jesus' attitude was the attitude of God. Perfect. The attitude of Jesus, his human attitude, his human mind, his human heart, his human soul, his human spirit, everything about him was divine. His human stuff was divine. It's the revelation of the face of God. His heart is God's heart. This is the greatest revelation we could ask for. To see in a living, breathing, walking, talking person we can touch and see. Not just an abstract idea off in the clouds somewhere. The end of some philosophical argument that we can never have a relationship with. But a person that this Jesus is what God is like. What a revelation. God is like Jesus. You see the way Jesus loves? God loves like that. You see the way Jesus thinks? God thinks like that. So that you can look at Jesus and look through Him and see the Father. In Him the Father is made known. And that's where the passage ends. No one's ever seen God, but Jesus has made Him known.
Jesus has made him known. And that word for made known comes into English as exegesis, as interpretation. Jesus is God's own exegesis of himself. God interprets himself to us by showing us Jesus. He makes the Father known. He shows us who God really is. He is the face of God so that when you've seen Him, you know who the Father really is. You know who your God really is. God is like Jesus. So I want to finish this way. Christmas is what makes us Christian. Christmas is the Christian distinction. Easter is awesome, but no Christmas, no Easter. If Jesus is just a fictional character, he's no, him dying and rising for our sins and our eternal life is no better, no different than Luke Skywalker saving the galaxy from Darth Vader. It's just, it's a great story, it's a great movie, makes a lot of money, makes us happy to think about, but it's fiction without Christmas. If there's no baby in the manger, there's nobody who can die and rise for us on Easter. Christmas is what makes us Christian. Everything in John 1, 1 to 13 is, is good, solid Jewish Old Testament theology. But it becomes Christian when we get to verse 14. The Word was made flesh. Christian, where do you find God? Where do you find God? Some people find God in the, the glory of the universe. It's so big, and God has to be that big if He made it all. That's true. And some people find God in the glory of a sunset, or the majesty of the mountains, or out in the wilderness. That's true. They find God in the beauty of the world. That's right. And some people find God in the love that we have. God is love, after all. And so when we see examples and we feel love in our heart, and we, when we are most loving, we can feel God. We can find God there because God is love. That's right. I agree with all that. But you don't have to be Christian to believe all that, to see God in the vastness of the universe or the beauty of the world or the, the sweetness and power of love. You don't have to be a religious at all <laughs> to see God in those things. What makes you a Christian is that you see God in the face of Jesus. Is that these words, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory, that those are your faith. That's your faith. You're a Christian because you see God in Jesus and you see him fully and you see him in an unmatched and unrivaled way. God is like Jesus. And that's why you're Christian because that's where you find God. Where are you searching for the treasures that Jesus brings, that glory, that grace, and that truth? Have you welcomed the light of the world to come and dwell in your midst? Have you welcomed him into your heart and life? Do you find him to be what this text says? The face from which God's very glory shines, satisfying you forever. Christmas is what makes us Christian. So, oh, come, let us adore him. Let's pray. Father, please show us your glory.
by opening our eyes to see Jesus in his matchless wonder, to see him for who he is so that we can see you for who you are and help us to receive the light that only he can bring and to rejoice in that light, to walk in that light, to dwell with him in the light. Father, fill us with that light so that we can share it and shine it to others around us and help us this Christmas to so worship you and thank you for the gift of all gifts, your uniquely begotten Son, the image of your invisible glory shining from his precious face. And may we never take our eyes off of him. Amen.